Welcome back to The Law. I am your host, D.K. Williams, and as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network, always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. This is episode eight of The Law, and we're going to discuss Brown versus Board of Education today. This is a case that overturned the separate but equal doctrine that was approved by the Supreme Court um, in the case we went over last week, Plessy v. Ferguson. So the Plessy case was done in the late 1890s or the mid-1890s. Brown versus Board of Education was finally approved or decided by the Supreme Court in 1954. So separate but equal was the officially sanctioned policy of segregation by the United States Supreme Court for about six decades. So think about representing the states or the school boards in the Brown versus Board of Education matter. And it wasn't just Brown. There were several cases uh, all bringing up the same issues and they were consolidated and Brown was the, the named plaintiff, the name that got stuck to the final decision by the U.S. Supreme Court. But can you imagine being the lawyer for the state and defending separate but equal? I mean, it's one thing to do it in 1896. That's bad enough. But to do it in 1954, and I know that that there was still blatant racism in the 50s. But if it was your job to defend separate but equal as a professional, as a lawyer representing the state, the state's power to physically separate people by race in a public school, it's just one reason I, I would have a hard time being a government lawyer being asked to do things I didn't believe in. Now, and if you believe in it, that, to me, that makes it worse. First, you know, what I think goes on in government is oppressive and illegitimate. So that's the first reason. And the second reason is there is no second reason. What the government does is oppressive and illegitimate mostly and as the ANCAPs would say all of it is and just an example is I, I peruse local job openings illegal job openings every once in a while and I remember seeing uh, one that was for the city of Denver attorney being a compliance attorney that job would be to enforce municipal regulations for the city of Denver to me that sounds like damnation to the ninth circle of hell you're working as an agent of treachery against all that is righteous and holy to get a little melodramatic but you have to say things like no I'm sorry small business person who wants to provide a service to this community, but you don't have the requisite permission from a low-level clerk in the building across town to use your private property as you wish. You'll need to fill out some forms, which I don't have. You're going to have to pay the required fee. You're going to have to get an official stamp from that clerk and then wait 60 days and we'll decide whether or not you can do what you want to do voluntarily with your own property in order to make a profit from people who are willing to buy your goods or service. What a horrendous, horrendous job. A miserable life. I don't care how much time you get off or how much you get paid. Defending segregation, of course, is a thousand times worse than being a municipal compliance attorney. But you're just a state compliance attorney, right? You're a government compliance attorney. If you work for the government as an attorney, you're a compliance attorney. You are arguing and enforcing government rules against people who don't wish to comply. Some people are born for that. Back to separate but equal Brown versus Board of Education. Who was Brown in the name of the case? Oliver Brown was a parent and he was the lead plaintiff in one of the class action lawsuits brought across the country to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson, the separate but equal doctrine. The idea that according to the 14th Amendment, you have to treat everybody the same, provide the same benefits. If the state, which is backed up by the law, is going to provide a service, it has to do it equally to everyone. Separate but equal is the notion that we can provide an equal service to everyone, but we're going to separate the races. So you've got a school system over here for white kids, a school system over here for black kids. They're separate, but they're equal. That's the idea behind it. And of course, they're never equal. They were never equal. And that's one of the things that is talked about in Brown versus Board of Education. But even beyond that, it's the idea that even if the buildings are the same, even if the level of teachers are the same, even if all that stuff is equal, the act of the segregation itself makes it unequal. So Oliver Brown had 
had a daughter, Linda Brown, and Linda was denied entrance to Topeka, Kansas, all-white elementary schools. So he was one of the people that brought an action to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson and overturn the Kansas laws that required or permitted segregated public schools. Like I said, there were other class actions in other states, but they were all consolidated by the time they got to the U.S. Supreme Court. Brown, or the plaintiffs in general, they, they claimed that the schools for black children were not equal to the white schools and that the segregation violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And that's the part that says no state can deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now, this was a well-planned strategic mission to overturn Plessy. The NAACP recruited plaintiffs, and that's perfectly acceptable. When you've got hundreds of thousands or millions of people adversely affected by a law, you need someone who can serve as that lead plaintiff. You need a good person that can do the job and accept the responsibility of being the, the face of this case, the face of this movement, you need somebody good for that. Thurgood Marshall, who was later appointed to the Supreme Court, as most of you would know, was one of the main lawyers for the NAACP in bringing all these cases together and fighting this cause. So since Brown is the main plaintiff, let's start with Kansas. The U.S. District Court in Kansas agreed that public school segregation had a, quote, detrimental effect upon the colored children, end quote, and it contributed to a, quote, sense of inferiority, but they still held, upheld, the separate but equal doctrine. Now, the district court really can't overturn the Supreme Court. I mean, the federal judge is a lifetime appointment, so nothing would happen to him if he did, but district court judge's job description is to follow the Supreme Court precedent, not overrule it. And he can't anyway. Even if the district court judge or the district court in Kansas or any of these other ones had said, yeah, we're going to overturn Plessy v. Ferguson. We're just the district court, but we're going to overturn the Supreme Court. It wouldn't have any effect outside of that particular case until a higher court eventually ruled on it. So in a major case like this, the district court judge knows that the Supreme Court is probably going to hear it anyway. But even if they don't, the Supreme Court has that authority to do it. The district court doesn't. So even if the district court overturns a case like Plessy v. Ferguson, it's not going to have any effect anywhere else because the district court in New York doesn't care what the district court in Kansas did. But the district court in New York and Hawaii and everywhere else does care what the Supreme Court did. So I think in some of these cases, these district courts wanted to overturn Plessy, but they knew they didn't really have the power. They, they had to just move the case along until it got to the Supreme Court. What the district court can do, and they do sometimes, is they can lay out all the compelling reasons the Supreme Court might overturn it, basically agreeing with the plaintiff, but then saying, I don't have the authority to do that. I have to enforce, in this case, Plessy v. Ferguson, but the Supreme Court might, for all of these reasons, eventually overturn it. I can't, however. There's some interesting politics involved in how the Supreme Court eventually reached its decision, issued its opinion in Brown versus Board of Education. Now, when the case first got to the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice was Fred Vinson, V-I-N-S-O-N. At best, he was not sure. He wasn't a hardcore believer in overturning Plessy. He was not a sure vote to overturn it. And they heard arguments. You know, of course, they get all the briefs. They heard all the arguments. And the Supreme Court was divided about what to do. So that was during the 1952 term when the Supreme Court heard the arguments. They couldn't reach a consensus and they wanted a consensus because they knew this was a major thing. They wanted to, if they could, get a, a unanimous decision in overturning it just basically for political reasons. If it was five to four, people are going to be more likely to question it, question the legitimacy of it. So they wanted the 9-0. They couldn't get it. And I found this article on the Kent State Law School site that talked about some of the politics behind it. So as the term was ending when Vincent was still the Chief Justice, Justice Frankfurter made the suggestion 
suggestion that, hey, let's have re-argument on this. Let's ask them some more specific questions about this. Quick aside, this just shows my immaturity. Whenever I see Justice Frankfurter's name, I think of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. If you get the reference, you'll know why. So Justice Frankfurter asked if the court would consider re-arguments. This is basically just a delaying tactic so they could put it off until the next year and maybe come up with a better consensus or find some way to resolve the issue. So Frankfurter came up with some questions that he wanted the lawyers to argue that they hadn't already, including some about the history of the 14th Amendment and how it affected public schools or the state of public schools to the extent they existed in the 1890s. And history became important in answering those questions. And they scheduled a new round of arguments for the following session, the fall session that, you know, they started in October in 1953. By the time they got around to those arguments in 1953, Justice Chief Justice Vinson had died of a sudden heart attack. I mean, nobody was expecting that, but he did. And so President Eisenhower had filled that seat and he appointed Earl Warren to be the new Chief Justice. So Earl Warren, who was the Republican governor of California, is now the new Chief Justice and he was much more willing to overturn Plessy. Earl Warren is now the new Chief Justice. He's brand new. He's been on the bench for two months and he's got this school desegregation case that has come back before him. So the delay worked out. It worked out in a way nobody was expecting, but that's what happened. And so we're still talking about the Kansas case. We'll talk about the other ones also. But Kansas has already abandoned the mandated school segregation prior to this case reaching the Supreme Court for arguments the first time. In essence, as a political matter, the political leaders in Kansas didn't want to defend school segregation anymore. The lawyer representing Kansas was Paul Wilson, and he didn't support segregation. And so this goes back to when you're a lawyer working for the state, what do you do when you don't really believe in the case you're arguing? Well, he didn't believe in segregation, but he did feel that the issue should be left up to the the states to decide. And in his case, in Kansas was doing away with segregated schools. It was just politically not uh, a winning issue anymore. So in 53, when the second argument came up, now Chief Justice Warren is in charge. Kansas had already started desegregating their schools. They actually spent a lot of time discussing whether or not that case was moot, whether or not there was any reason for the court to decide a dispute because there wasn't a dispute anymore. Of course, they went ahead and decided it, in part because other cases in other places were dealing with the same issues. So after hearing the re-arguments, Chief Justice Warren was able to engineer a unanimous decision to overrule Plessy v. Ferguson and abolish this constitutionally protected heretofore of separate but equal. And we'll get into some of those specifics about it. There are actually two main Brown versus Board of Education. It actually is at least one more, but this is the first one. This is the one that unanimously overturned Plessy, overturned the doctrine of separate but equal, but it specifically said there's a whole lot of untangling to do at the state level and the local level. And so we're going to have to have the argument again on how best to do that. And that was Brown versus Board 2, Roman numeral 2, you know, like Balboa versus Creed 2 or whatever. They had it again. This is important because it did overturn unanimously Plessy. Quick note on Brown 2, when they heard arguments and the court issued an opinion about how states were going to have to undo segregation, that's where the phrase, with all deliberate speed, came from was in Brown too. So they didn't say, you guys have to do this by next year. They didn't do anything bright line like that. They said, you guys have to undo segregation, quote, with all deliberate speed. And that became an issue of argument for decades. Were they doing it fast enough? 
that type of thing. So there were still, still several decades to untangle all this to get segregation ended. Brown won was the first step in overturning Plessy versus Ferguson and getting all that started. There were three other cases from other states, three other class actions. So we had Kansas. We talked a little bit about that one. Also one from South Carolina and Virginia, which were all cases that were started in federal court. And there was also one from Delaware where they started in state court and the state Supreme Court ruled in plaintiff's favor in that. And that was the only one of these four states where the plaintiff won. The other three were district courts, federal district courts that ruled in the state's favor. In the Kansas case, the district court found that, quote, segregation in public education has a detrimental effect upon Negro children, but nevertheless, they denied relief on the grounds that the different schools were, quote, substantially equal with respect to the buildings, transportation, curricula, and educational qualifications of teachers. So that's what the district court case found there. They said, yeah, there's a detrimental effect, but everything is separate, but it is equal. Therefore, under Plessy v. Ferguson, we cannot say that the schools must desegregate. They must end the two school systems, one for black people and one for white people. Now, the case out of South Carolina, the district court, and these were three judge panels because of a statutory procedural thing, but the three judge panel in South Carolina found, quote, the Negro schools were inferior to the white schools. Now, they didn't order the end of segregation, however. What they did was they ordered the defendants, the school system, the school boards, to, quote, begin immediately to equalize the facilities. So we've got a different outcome here in South Carolina. Kansas, they said the schools were equal. South Carolina, they said they're not, so you guys are going to have to make them equal. They didn't end segregation. They said you guys got to make the black schools equal to the white schools. Also in South Carolina, they denied the plaintiff's request to go to the white schools while the schools were being equalized. Virginia case, basically the same thing as South Carolina, found the, quote, Negro school inferior in the physical plant, curricula, transportation, and ordered the defendants to provide substantially equal curricula, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to remove the inequalities in the physical plant, et cetera. But like in the South Carolina case, the Virginia court denied the plaintiff's admission to the white schools during the equalization program. Okay, so in Delaware, where it's different though because that, they went through the state court system there. This is part of the strategy. So they went through the state court in Delaware. The trial court ruled in plaintiff's favor and there the judge, they call him a chancellor in Delaware, but the chancellor there gave judgment to the plaintiffs, ordered their immediate admission to schools previously attended only by the white children on the ground that the Negro schools, again I'm quoting, the Negro schools were inferior with respect to teacher training, pupil teacher ratio, extracurricular activities, the physical plant, time and distance involved in, in travel. Delaware court also found that the segregation itself resulted in an inferior education for the black kids. The Supreme Court of Delaware confirmed the lower court judge's ruling in state court in Delaware. The state Supreme Court, however, quote, intimated, end quote, that the state might be able to obtain a modification of the decree after they equalized the schools. So if they equalized everything they said was unequal, then maybe you can go back to segregation. So that's what the state Supreme Court said. That's not a, a binding decision, but they said maybe we'll consider that in the future. So the state of Delaware appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and it got joined with these other cases out of Virginia, South Carolina, and Kansas. The only thing the state appealed in Delaware, however, was the part of the order that said all the black kids have to go to the white schools right now, immediately, while you guys figure out how to equalize the rest of the schools. So the state admitted that the facility, etc., weren't equal. They just didn't want to segregate while the facilities were all being brought up to speed. And just think, as a practical matter, how long would that take? How long would it take to get them equal, just on the building side of it? And 
and then the other issues as well. So now we have it before the Warren Supreme Court, after hearing arguments twice for the delay, which just happened to have the Chief Justice, the prior Chief Justice Vincent die. So you got Warren in there now. The court describes the issue. This is in the case itself. Brown won. Brown versus Board of Education. The court described the issue thusly. In each of the cases, minors of the Negro race, through their legal representatives, their parents basically, seek the aid of the courts in obtaining admission to the public schools of their community on a non-segregated basis. That's what the plaintiffs are seeking. The court went on, quote, in each instance, the plaintiffs have been denied admission to schools attended by white children under laws requiring or permitting segregation. The segregation was alleged to deprive the plaintiffs of the equal protection of the laws under the 14th Amendment. That's the entire reason we're having this argument. In each of the cases other than the Delaware case, the district court ruled against the plaintiffs, said the so-called separate but equal doctrine announced by Plessy was still in effect, and that because of the separate but equal doctrine, equality of treatment is accorded, quote, when the races are provided substantially equal facilities, even though those facilities be separate, end quote. And the Warren court noted that the Supreme Court of Delaware still applied that doctrine, but ordered that the plaintiffs be allowed to go to the white schools pending the equalization. The court went on and talked about how the plaintiffs' argument that the segregated public schools are not equal and cannot be made equal because of the segregation, and hence they are deprived of the equal protection of the laws. And I'm no physicist by any means, but I understand that there are some quantum particles that change by merely observing them. So by trying to measure them, you change them, what makes it impossible to measure them. Physics people can tell me where I'm wrong about that, but there's some concept about just looking at it makes it different. So I see separate but equal kind of in those terms. By the act of separating, you make them unequal. It's a bad comparison, but my mind is not normal. Physicists, please tell me how horrible that comparison is. The Warren court talked about the second argument. Of course, they don't make any reference to the fact that the prior chief justice is now dead, but that is what happened. They talked about how the re-argument was an exhaustive consideration of the amendment in Congress the ratification by the states, and the then existing practices in racial segregation, and the views of proponents and opponents of the amendment. So this is back when the 14th Amendment was being passed. So they talk about the views of the proponents and opponents so they can get an idea about what it really meant to them. The court decides that considering all this quote was inconclusive. Now, this is a reference to legislative history. So legislative history is basically just the arguments of the people that want it to pass and the arguments of people that don't want it to pass. And you look at those arguments and the idea is to get a better feel for what the final words that were passed actually meant. But consider that. Opponents of any proposal are going to exaggerate the bad side of it. Proponents of it are going to minimize the bad potential of whatever this proposal is. So to me, legislative history is useless. It really is literally useless because you're looking at extreme versions, not reasonable versions of what might happen. Sure, there are reasonable versions during debate, but you're going to see unreasonable versions of it. The end of the world will happen if this passes or no, not much is going to happen. This is just a minor little tweak because that's what argument is. I find that nonsensical. To me, the only legislative history that matters are the words in the final document, the final statute, the final proposal, whatever it is, those words that were passed through the legislative process, that is the only intent that matters. And if it's not clear, that's the legislature's fault or whoever drafted the proposal or whoever voted on it. And if it's not clear, it is up to those people, that body, that legislative body to fix it. And looking at what the proponents exaggerated version 
or the opponent's minimized version during the legislative history to me doesn't provide any legitimate guidance. And in this particular case, the Supreme Court said that, yeah, the legislative history doesn't really help us, which is good because they're going to look at the exact words of the 14th Amendment and not what any of the proponents or opponents said about it. The court did discuss the history around the 14th Amendment. They discussed how public schooling existed at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted. They talked about how in the South, quote, the movement toward free common schools supported by general taxation had not yet taken hold, period. So they didn't have public schools in a lot of places in the South. They noted that education of the white children was largely in the hands of private groups, and the education of Negroes was almost non-existent. And in some states and places, education of Negroes was forbidden by law. So they paint that picture of the public school system in the South at the time the 14th Amendment was passed. And let's remember this. The education of the black kids was forbidden by law, by the government, not by free market. It was forbidden by the state, not by capitalists. And this is a point these socialists, these anti-capitalists miss all the time. They ignore this or they're blind to it. Jim Crow were laws. They're Jim Crow laws. They were not Jim Crow capitalism. They were not Jim Crow free markets. They were Jim Crow laws. And so you hear a lot of times socialists or statists in general will say, oh, it's wonderful the state overturned the Jim Crow laws. Well, the state implemented the Jim Crow laws. You don't give them credit for undoing what they've already wrongly done or for not doing it anymore. It's like throwing a party and congratulating Chris Brown for not hitting Rihanna anymore. You don't get credit for no longer abusing people. And without the power of government guns, with government enforcement, what's the worst an individual racist can do? Or a group of racists? Nothing except talk. What can those same racists do with the power of the government? They can call out those government guns. They can threaten violence toward anyone who wants to integrate in this case. And it happened. One classic example is the governor of Arkansas at the time, Orville Faubus, called out the National Guard to prevent the segregation of schools in Little Rock because he was in the government and he had the control of the guns. If he was just a guy farming in Arkansas and had the exact same attitude, he would have zero power to do a damn thing about it. It's the government that's the problem, not free individuals acting voluntarily in free market transactions. One guy without government guns is just a guy. He's got no power over you. If the government can give that same guy that power. This simple fact is why libertarians exist. The Supreme Court in Brown versus Board, the very first one, continued discussing the state of public education back when the 14th Amendment was passed, and they noted that even in the North, quote, compulsory school attendance was virtually unknown, end quote. Forced attendance. So if you don't go, the truant officers can bring you before a judge and punish you or your parents somehow. Education is crucial. So crucial, it doesn't need to be compulsory. So the court looked at the state of public education at the time the 14th Amendment was passed, but to me, that doesn't really matter. The, the amendment, the 14th Amendment was passed to change things, not keep them the same. So looking at the way things were when it was passed is of limited value. To me, it's like the First Amendment applies to the internet, even though it didn't exist in 1791 when the Bill of Rights was passed, and the Second Amendment applies to modern rifles, not just to muskets. It's the principles that matter regardless of technology or changing views on mandatory compulsory school attendance at state-run schools. The Supreme Court noted that prior to Brown reaching them, they had dealt with six cases involving the separate but equal doctrine in public education. Now remember, Plessy wasn't about schools. It was about segregation of trains, but it's the same idea. 
So in those six cases that they dealt with, Supreme Court dealt with in regards to education after Plessy, five of them found that the separate systems were not equal. Therefore, something had to be done to make them equal. In Brown, however, they are considering whether or not that's legitimate at all. The separation, the segregation itself is legitimate. The separate but equal doctrine, is it legitimate or should it be overturned? Warren wrote in, in his unanimous opinion, quote, we must look instead to the effect of segregation itself on public education, end quote. And here's a statement from Earl Warren in the opinion that will make libertarians cringe, quote, today, this is in the 50s, today, education is perhaps the most important function of state and local governments, end quote. But it gets worse. He goes on, quote, compulsory school attendance and the great expenditures for education both demonstrate our recognition of the importance of education to our democratic society. It is required in the performance of our most basic public responsibilities, even service in the armed forces. It is the very foundation of good citizenship. Today, it is a principal instrument in awakening the child to cultural values, in preparing him for later professional training, and in helping him to adjust normally to his environment, end quote. I'm not going to spend much time on this statist view, except to quote Joseph Stalin, who said, education is a weapon whose effect depends on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. And if you want to raise generations of people who revere the state, trust it, and want to give it more control and more power, who better to provide that education than the state? Do we need thought control? Because after all, all in all, it's just another brick in the wall. Am I right, people? Having made that aside about public education itself, that's actually got nothing to do with Brown versus Board of Education, because if the state is going to provide an education, can they segregate it? No is the answer after Brown versus Board of Education, and Plessy is overturned. That decision has got nothing to do with the existence of state-run schools, whether or not the state should have a monopoly on those schools, how much competition should be allowed by the state, right? Allowed by the state. Of course, on that issue, freedom and choice and voluntary choosing among as many choices as possible will provide the best outcome. And the court does obliquely deal with this idea that I'm talking about, about the state providing it or not, because it says, quote, in these days, it is doubtful that any child may reasonably be expected to succeed in life if he is denied the opportunity of an education. Such an opportunity where the state has undertaken to provide it is a right which must be made available to all on equal terms. So they're saying the state doesn't have to provide public education. It's certainly not in the U.S. Constitution. States might have it in their constitution, but they don't have to. But where they undertake to provide public education, they have to afford it to all on equal terms. Again, let me get into the weeds here a little bit. The court describes public schools where the state has undertaken to provide it as an opportunity. Then it goes on to say that that right must be available. Okay, they're confusing two different ideas. An opportunity provided is not the same thing as a right to that opportunity. And I just wish that lawyers in general or historians in general would be very careful about how they use the concept of a right. You have a right to not be aggressed upon. You have a right to self-ownership. You don't have a right to be provided anything. So the court in Brown overturning Plessy says there's no requirement that the state provide public education, but if they do, they can't segregate, which of course, that is the morally and legally correct resolution in putting a bow on their entire decision. And this is a relatively short Supreme Court decision. It's only seven pages. The Supreme Court putting a bow on it says, quote, we come to the question presented, does segregation of children in public schools solely in the basis of race, even though the physical facilities and other tangible factors may be equal, does the segregation deprive the children of the minority group of equal educational opportunities? We believe that it does. So there you have it with a bow on it. The court puts an exclamation point on the bow to horribly mangle metaphors, but the court 
it says, to separate them from others, to separate the minority children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone, end quote. And then with the final exclamation point, the court says, we conclude that in the field of public education, the doctrine of separate but equal has no place. Separate educational facilities are inherently unequal. And they're right about that. Now, how are they going to fix it? As we talked about a little bit earlier in the beginning of this, they didn't know. And the court said that since these are all class actions from a bunch of different places, because of the wide applicability of the decision, and because of the great variety of local conditions, the formulation of decrees in these cases presents problems of considerable complexity. So they reset argument on those matters, on how to fix as a practical matter, the widespread segregation and how to undo it. And that argument went on for at least the next half a century. But Brown versus Board of Education finally overturned Plessy versus Ferguson after about six decades and the separate but equal doctrine had been put to bed. And that's how it happened. I'm DK Williams and this has been The Law. This has been Episode 8, Brown versus Board of Education. And we are brought to you by the Launchpad Media Network. Always launching ideas in your direction. Find us at thelaunchpadmedia.com. Holla at me with your comments. I'm on Twitter at BlueCarp. Facebook.com slash BlueCarp. You'll see DK Williams there. Let me know what you think. If you've got any questions or any cases you'd like to discuss, let me know. And as always, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.